0: One thing that comes to mind here is, I don't know if you've ever read Dalio's book, Principles. Mm-hmm. He goes through this scenario where he basically structured uh, an options strategy, I guess, for McDonald's to where mm-hmm. they it enabled them to have the chicken McNugget for the, sort of a similar reason. The prices of chicken were fluctuating too much. So they went in and put a collar around this thing so they could get predictable long-term chicken pricing. Which led yep. to the production of the chicken nugget, um, which is sort of what you're saying here uh, in this competitive environment of fiat currencies. That a a sovereign or an issuer would then put these parameters in place. I guess it wouldn't be. It'd be a soft guarantee on purchasing power, right? Like this yeah, it's thing, soft because you
1: know, of course in a true shortage, that that price is going to run away right from you. Yeah. You just yeah. have to let it go, right? Yeah, but. But that's actually something which is a it is a reasonable product to offer. Mm-hmm. So
0: I agree with all of this. I guess the issue would be you're still having to trust the issuer. Like if they're giving you this long term predictable inflation. Yes, but that's portfolio theory because you
1: you wouldn't put hundred percent of your trust. Yeah, where you put exactly.
0: Zero. Yes, right? right, right, right. That makes sense. So in this type of future, you end up. I mean, I guess as a sovereign individual, you're holding most of your reserve in Bitcoin. And then if you're operating in a particular jurisdiction for a particular amount of time, you're funding that fiat currency to go in and live or do business or whatever it may be.
1: That's right. Or or in a truly internationally competitive environment. See, what I don't think most people have taken on board is the true implication of what a digital wallet means. Mm. Because I think the DeFi matrix is going to be to this decade what the social graph was to the last, and what I mean by that is every asset. Uh, let me put it. Let me kind of give an analogy with, with Google News. Google News, if you remember when it came out in you know the early two thousands, it put every newspaper in competition with every other newspaper. Right. Suddenly, the you know Arkansas Gazette, this and the Miami Herald and the um, Chicago Tribune or whatever, it was all shown that they were just reprinting the same AP story.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Right, and suddenly it was something where, wait a second, there's no value add for that anymore. As more and more people go online, there, I mean, there was value add if you're distributing this physically in Chicago. The other guys distributing in Miami, making photocopies was valuable back when the internet didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But when the guy in Chicago and Miami and New York and Colorado could all just click and view the same thing, the value of those trucks and distribution networks and the photocopies are making that went away, right? And uh, so then that led to the, uh, you know, basically destruction of traditional local newspapers and traditional media and winner-take-all competition and the ascendance of these international outlets and clickbait and the ideological meltdown and now Substack, that unlocked a bunch of things, right? Yeah. We are the, just at the beginning of the same thing for every asset, hmm. because the search engines, like the exchanges of today, are going to become asset search engines tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay, where every asset is going on chain. It's not just digital gold. It is um, every every you know. For example, in the U.S., we have this sort of, in my view, very archaic discussion about 1930s you know, statutes and orange groves as what is security versus what is not. And to be clear, whatever the letter of the law is, you abide by that. Okay. But it's extremely stupid to say, oh, this is a security, therefore it's bad or whatever. This stuff is a hundred years old. Right. Like we have to revisit this in 2021. Yes. You can't yes. tell, right. I mean, just, just as somebody, I mean, you, you actually have like an accounting background, like a finance background.
0: I do. Yeah. I was a, a CPA. Um, for a while. I, Okay. Yeah. And to your point, these laws were just, they did not contemplate digital reality
1: at all. Exactly. I mean, like, if you've ever done an M and A or a VC investment or something like that, the effort required to prepare the to maintain every month your chart of accounts and your general ledger, and from that prepare your financial statements, your balance sheet, your income statement, cash flow, and and then all of the the things that come out of that, because you have like operationally useful versions of that where you're breaking it out by uh, this subgroup and customer, that's a discretionary yeah,
0: region, yeah.
1: Yeah, all, all that stuff. Yep. Um, and then you go up one higher order, which is, will the VC invest or will this company buy you? And that's based not on just your you know, balance sheet today, but it's like the history of it over time. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff should be auto-generated. Mm -hmm. All of this, like right now, that is this huge manual process. And you have things like, um, you know, GAP versus uh, the- IFRS. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. IFRS. And and often those differences boil down to parameter choices. Like, do you do FIFO or LIFO for inventory is like one of the big differences between them, right? Yeah. All of that should be code. And once you have transactions on chain, you have financial statements on chain. Once you have financial statements on chain, you start having companies on chain. Once you have companies on chain, you have M&A on chain. Okay, and so my point is, and of course, you have equity on chain, right? And so just from a a pure efficiency standpoint, for the same reason that we're sending emails rather than physical mails, for the same reason that... Uh, you know, we will do video chat rather than flying out or that we will use a search engine rather than going to a library. Um, Digital finance will digitize every aspect of the corporation and also reduce the costs of selling a company, buying a company, all these things. You know, F-L-I-P-P-A, do you know what that is? I do not. It's unfortunately named, but it's called Flippa, where it's like flipping small businesses or whatever. I hate the name because it's like, (laughs) you know, like I don't think of capitalism as about, flipping things, okay? Yeah. But I do think the idea of a market for small businesses is a good thing. You know, yes. like that liquidity is good, right? Yeah. So what's my point? The DeFi matrix, the reason I call it the DeFi matrix is one square of the DeFi matrix is um, like Bitcoin versus, or rather one one rectangle is Bitcoin versus all the fiat currencies of the world, right? Bitcoin versus USD, Bitcoin versus EUR, mm-hmm. Bitcoin versus RUB, etc. okay? Then you have... Um, all the crypto, crypto that—that's a whole square, right? Bitcoin versus Ethereum, Bitcoin versus um, you know this and that currency in, in this mm-hmm. square, right? Then you have fiat, fiat, which is the forex market. Mm-hmm. Then you have fiat versus equity, which is uh, USD versus Google stock, USD versus Facebook stock, and, mm-hmm. and so on, right? And then once you start filling this in, you've got commodities, right? You've got all these other digital assets, whatever. When you fill this in. It's something where when you truly take on board what a digital wallet means, a digital wallet means every kind of asset, mortgages, stocks, fiat currencies, Bitcoin, um, you know, NFTs, whatever. All of those are in one gigantic digital wallet with like a billion rows. And then the billion versus billion is the DeFi matrix. Now, what are the implications for countries? Well, there's lots of implications for lots of different parties, but it's very similar to what Google News did. It just puts everybody into competition with everybody else. Right. Okay. Like, you know, just like the Miami Herald and the Chicago Tribune, were suddenly competing with each other for clicks. The Swiss franc and the Chinese RMB are suddenly competing with each other for portfolio holders. Yes. And new entrants to the market like Estonia or Israel or small countries can issue fiat currencies that can scale to the whole world if they can be deployed in the right digital wallet.
0: Right. And this, all this competition is inducing more honesty between issuers too, right? They're going to, Right, you now, want to now. inflate less to attract more currency holders. That's
1: right. Yeah. I think Bitcoin becomes the zero, zero of this thing. It's like the yes. single most important zero. zero.
0: I love the analogy. <laughs>
1: That's right. It is. It's literally what the whole thing is, right? Yeah. You know, like in a you know matrix algebra, you know, you'll denote like the yeah. first element either one, zero, 1 or zero car.
0: zero because it's zero percent terminal inflation, and it's perfected what we want in money.
1: Yeah, exactly. Lots of reasons, but but it's it's essentially the asset that everybody wants. Yes. Right. So yes. because it's that universal thing, it is the denominator of the DeFi matrix, mm-hmm. and I mean the thing is when you know, like when people talk about. Gold, right? And they say, oh, Bitcoin would be successful if it was on par with gold. It's close, by the way. It's like two trillion gold, like one trillion Bitcoin. It's close now, right? Mm. That's actually an underestimate. And the reason is gold in you know, in the 2010s and the early 2020s, is a neutered version of its former self. Mm. It's a gelded version. Because gold, if you go and read history books, gold used to be what it was all about. Oh, yeah. Right, you're, I mean, look, you're actually probably more expert than 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 almost anybody, probably including myself, on this. But like, you know, the Spanish—they were all about the gold. The gold they brought from the New World it flooded the market and you know rose prices because it kind of violated the assumption of of, of gold scarcity. But gold yeah. was the center of that old economy. Yes. And if digital gold is the center of this new economy, it's not a trillion dollars. It's like a hundred trillion dollars or something insane like
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed completely. Um, no, that, that's a, I do a deep study of the history of gold. I just finished a book actually called the twilight of gold. I don't know if you've read this mm. one, but yeah, to your point, it was, it is the game, right? The game was gold. How do you accumulate as much gold as possible? Um, and it had this really interesting effect that the author actually referred to gold as the regulator of governments, you know, it, it, it yes, induced exactly discipline in the balance of payments which is to say the capital inflows and outflows of a country if a country's being monetarily irresponsible gold would leave the country um so it had this 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 checking mechanism on on government um and i tweeted out something i thought was kind of witty the other day i said bitcoin will become the ungovernable governor of government did, if were- did you see
1: my so i love that did you, you know i gave a I did a tweet on this a couple of years ago and I gave a podcast on it with very with similar ideas, where I was like, um Bitcoin at uh you know ten thousand dollars is an industry, Bitcoin at 100000 dollars is a government, Bitcoin at a million dollars is a global government, just a pro-freedom global government, and one that neither party anticipated. So the reason I say it, it's kind of like you know, the Hegelian dialectic thesis, you know, antithesis synthesis, right? Yeah. So thesis were these various folks who have wanted for many years, like the UN to become a global government, the supranational entity, et cetera. Antithesis were folks who argued, I think with some reason that, hey, that'd be terribly bad. We wouldn't have choice. you know. Um, that's oppressive and so on. And the synthesis... Is Bitcoin as the global government, but it's a pro-freedom global government in the sense that it constrains every yes. state since they can't print more bitcoins, they can't seize and and whatnot. Right. So it is kind of a head explode combination yes. of these two things, right? Um, and this, by the way, you know, it's funny. Like, uh, you know, Peter Schiff, who I have, I know he's like a anti Bitcoin troll in some ways on Twitter, and I think it's yeah. all like it's kind of fake because his son will kind of troll him back or whatever now. And so they're both like kind of getting followers. It's great right? it's for funny.
0: engagement. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's great. It's great for engagement. It's clearly yeah. like some Tom and Hardy kind of thing or yeah. whatever. Right. But the thing is that um, I think the fundamental thing that Peter Schiff and the other gold guys don't get is gold is gelded. We already know it has been because FDR defeated it. And we don't yeah. know if the state can defeat Bitcoin. That is still uncertain. Right. And that is actually now the fact that China swung hard at it with what it did with the mining is one of the most important proof points yet. You know the fact yes. that it only only knocked down mining by like sixty percent, and then mining recovered. You know, went from one hundred eighty xashis to eighty. Certainly, is pretty unfortunate for those Chinese miners. I feel bad for them. Yeah. Um, the lawless sort of you know CCP kind of just U turn. They did all this compliance stuff, and then just bankrupted and and, and crushed on this. I do feel bad for them. Yeah. Um,
0: but 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 good for Bitcoin. Bitcoin.
1: Bitcoin holders unaffected pretty much yeah. i mean like yeah it was like slower transactions for a little while but mm. the thing about that is if i mean china's an extremely well organized as i said like lawful evil in some ways right mm-hmm. they're an extremely well organized and competent state that was ahead of the curve you know on 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 so many things and if they took this hard swing at it, because they don't F around when they're doing something, mm-hmm. if they, they took a hard swing at it and they did, couldn't stop it, there's no other country that has the scale, the alignment, the speed, the ruthlessness that they do. So at right. least the mining attack, I think, is probably off the table for now. Modulo like some escalation, which like starts treating it like war on terror or something like that, yeah. which is not impossible, by the way, you know, but but even then i think that's unlikely because el salvador and others are state sponsors of bitcoin so yes. to speak right yes. so so you'll get you'll get polarization and you also crucially will not have unity within the us or other countries for prosecuting such a war because there's, you know, it's it's not like it's it's not like terrorism. It's something which benefits people, right? Yeah. So as much as the state might want to do it, they have too many people domestically, they don't have the consent to push that through, as we kind of saw with a pushback against this recent infrastructure quote unquote bill that was going after Bitcoin, going after crypto.
0: Yes, yeah, I agree. And I would add to the tell ones for Bitcoin in this respect is I think its value proposition is simple enough that it's going to penetrate a lot of minds relatively quickly. I know it's hard to understand at a distance, but once you start to get it, it's like money that can't steal from you or be stolen from you. Like people are yeah. going to figure that out. Um, but see, I like this actually analogy of Bitcoin as a world government, because like government, its core value prop- proposition really is, I guess you could say securing property rights um, or even providing property in a way. That's sort of the whole purpose of government, right? It's supposed to be the security network that lets the market do its thing. And then you know that however you spend your time and energy, uh, you can claim those fruits of labor. Like
1: Bitcoin gives you something similar. you know, there's something people used to say, or still say, which I think is wrong, but in the case of Bitcoin, it's right. They would say, oh, you know, the Chinese aren't like us. They make plans for a hundred years or something like that. And mm-hmm. I always laugh at that. I'm like, have you seen the last hundred years in China? There's a civil war, there's Maoism. <laughs> right. um, like they're human beings, like everybody else. They make yes. mistakes and they have huge F-ups, right? They're definitely not doing any hundred year plans. Okay. Yes. Um, but But with Bitcoin, Maybe you can. At least you can. It is one of the most certain things that you can plan around now. And uh, you know, the, the whole Lindy argument that that um you know, it's funny, like Talib was pro Bitcoin and now he's against it because of some emotional thing. I I like Talib. I'm not fighting with Talib Talib. Yeah. If you're listening, I'm not fighting with you, but I disagree <laughs> with you on this premise. Okay. But Talib's concept of uh, you know, Lindy, I think is. Uh, it's not his concept, of course. It's it's something he's popularized, though, right. of something that has existed for some time. Um, therefore, you should believe it's going to exist for longer. There's something to that, okay? But it's also not true because you know, there's a thousand things I can I can point to. I mean, we had yeah, it's uh,
0: a it's a life expectancy thing, not not a guarantee.
1: Yeah, it's not a guarantee. I uh, we had horses for how many centuries, and then mm. we had cars. Yes. Um, you, like technology is about the fact that yes, sometimes this time is different, by the way, just as a side note on that, um, in on the East coast, there's commonly people will say in the sort of sardonic way, Oh, this time it's different, huh? Mm-hmm. And it's meant to be a knockdown of, uh, well, clearly you're naive. Of course it, it's not different. And it really, to me, captures this East coast mentality where they're mindlessly repeating a saying that applies in a specific context, but not a general context. Um, The opposite of this time, you know, or the equivalent of this time it's never different is things never change. And that's clearly not true. Sometimes it is different, right? And it comes, I believe from like a a situation, there was some like fraudulent fund or something like that. And then it was extrapolated out into this general cynicism and conservatism about the possibility of change. And, and I don't think that's the case. And that's where I think the Lindy kind of thing can can take one wrong, where it makes people very conservative in a small C sense, where they're simply just not wise enough to be heads up and looking for possible disruptors. You know, the opposite of Lindy is, um, you know, only the paranoid survive.
0: Yeah, <laughs> interesting, right?
1: You know, the yeah. the uh, um, Andy Grove, CEO of Intel. He was like, yeah, you know, we've been killing it for a while, but the Japanese are coming up with DRAM and we need to pivot out of that. Only the paranoid survive is the opposite of just being very contented. And so, you know, this is actually similar to the whole fox and hedgehog thing, which is itself a mental model. Do you just have one thing that you just like thump and and use on every issue? Or do you have this mental model for this thing and this mental model for that thing? And I think the second is a more robust way of doing it. You do have general principles, but there are exceptions and edge cases and times where one model applies and the other one doesn't. Let me pause there.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's the trick or the art, I guess, is knowing how to zoom in and zoom out um, based on circumstances. So it it seems, uh, again, I like the analogy of Bitcoin as a government because it's it's enforcing or granting property rights, granted one specific property right, just in money, not in, in other tangible forms of property. But it's as an institution, it appears to be largely immune to politics, which is really important.
1: Um, uh, I, okay, go ahead. T- t- I, I, and, will, I will. I somewhat disagree with you on that, but then I'll that's fine. Up. And just and then the one thing that
0: and I, what I just mentioned, the other property rights. I think about this a lot, actually. You've said we're going to end up on this, I think you called it the DeFi matrix, which is kind of like um all property globally digitized in a single accessible via a single wallet, something like that. Eventually, yeah, exactly. It gets to the single digital wallet. Yep. The eventually is where my thinking gets stuck because it seems to me like the state is going to really hold on yeah. to the ledger, right? The property ledger that they say who owns what property. Um, you know, you clear. Equity and real estate transactions through the state, and title, and all these things. It seems like that's not something they're going to relinquish willingly. So, my general thought pattern on that was that Bitcoin needed to do its thing for a while first, really become kind of defund the nation state to some extent before these functions of other property started to fall off of the state of state control, let's say.
1: Yeah. So, more control can mean less upside. The reason I say can is it is possible to be a competent centrally planned state. East Asian countries are probably the best example of this. The Meiji Restoration is maybe the canonical, which is how Japan modernized in the mid-1800s. They were shocked by you know, how advanced the Westerners were, and they just basically put in a crash program. You know They did have international exchange. They had academics go abroad and so on, but they basically just like modernized the country. So the reason I say more control can mean less upside is certainly the Soviet system showed that, the communist systems have showed that, mm-hmm. um, France has shown that, it's driven away. It's coined, you know, the term entrepreneur comes from France, but many of its entrepreneurs have come away. Macron is kind of reversing that a little bit, but um, but basically it is something that, uh, that, that they have done. And so that would be the check on what you're saying, which is a restricted digital wallet, I agree, is something that countries will... Will try to do, but the unrestricted wallet will, you know, for the same reason that American and European options have different prices, the unrestricted one has a higher price. And so the question is will the extra stability that they get via that control be worth the upside um, that you get from allowing more volatility? And that right. really is, you know, a huge part of centralization versus decentralization. This decade is centralization is stability, and stability bounds downside, but it also bounds upside. Yeah. yeah. And and so you're going to see the best fight against centralization, and the mill push for it, and um, you know, or not not always, because some of the best will pull. It's one of these interesting things where the guy at the fifty percent mark. Doesn't benefit from a decentralized world, right. but the people at the extremes do. Yes, and you know, let me actually drill into that a little bit, just to, just to talk about that. Like, you know, what is crypto for? You know, what is what is Bitcoin specifically in crypto more generally for? It's for the the power user and the marginalized. It's mm-hmm. so it's the op it's extremes of the distribution, mm-hmm. right? So the power user. Is the developer or the investor who wants to move millions of dollars around the world with a keystroke to invest in something or to you know be the backhaul for like Airbnb, you know, some like giant tech companies moving billions of dollars, millions of dollars around the world with a keystroke. They don't want to deal with thousands of wire transfers and all this stupid stuff. It's just boop, 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 it just moves around. You're the power mm-hmm. user of money. Okay. Mm-hmm. On the other extreme, you're the marginalized. And you're just trying to hold on to a bank account. You're mm-hmm. in Nigeria, you're in um, you know, like Venezuela, you're in some country where they're cracking down, and you just want the most basic financial services. And so then you want Bitcoin, you want crypto, you want to protect your funds, and then you want checking and other kinds of things, you want those financial services on top of it. And this is the opposite of the stable person in a middle class environment. However, and, and that like Starbucks guy. And, and that's why, like, the whole coffee thing, that's not actually where Bitcoin was 10x. Because, it you know, the, the coffee transaction, it, it's not very large, very small, very fast, very international, very automated, or very transparent. It's something that is um, medium size and medium amount of time that it takes. And it's manual. You can see the other person. Um, and it doesn't need to be posted on some public chain for people to be able to diligence that you did it only matters between you and them and so on and so forth so that like middle class transaction is exactly the opposite of what this enables however that middle class person is on the one hand becoming a power user because they're getting onto Robinhood, they're getting onto Coinbase, they're trading stocks. There's there's hundreds of millions of people. There's at least a hundred million people doing this when there were three hundred thousand people on Bloomberg terminals in the '90s. So that's mm-hmm. like a, on the order of a hundred to a thousand x increase. So becoming power users, you are you're becoming somebody who's on search engines. You're processing all this information. Only only heads of state used to read like five newspapers a day in in the '80s or the '90s. Now mm-hmm. you read like fifty. Okay, so everybody's becoming a power user of information and money, but they're also becoming marginalized users of information and money because they're being deplatformed and they're being unbanked and they're being, you know, censored. And so the problems that Bitcoin and crypto solved that were not relevant to this guy living a stable middle class existence are becoming relevant because they're transforming into both the power user and the marginalized at the same time. And actually, a good example of somebody who's both is somebody like Binance. Who you know is both an extreme. Like you know, I, have, I have a lot of respect for CZ and what they've built, and so it's very hard as an entrepreneur to build something like that. Mm-hmm. It's challenging, but at the same time, they have to deal with all these governments and so on on this end. So they're being pushed off of rails and whatnot, and and so they're both at the same time the power user and the marginalized. And mm-hmm. I think in in some ways, to get around being marginalized, you're going to have to become a power user. This brings us back to our original point of you know becoming sovereign.
0: Hey, everybody. or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Let me just introduce this, which was to your, I think the last point you were going off of. So there's kind of these two, this is something I've thought about separately, but seems to align with something you just said, which was there's these two poles of Bitcoin adoption. And at one end, you have kind of the billionaire or high net worth individual class that i think will adopt bitcoin as a means of escaping forced wealth redistribution. We already we we saw AOC the other day with the dress tax the rich that was making the rounds like every time we get into government insolvency, you know, forced wealth redistribution, tax the rich, these these ideas um become really ag- aggressively implemented and I think Bitcoin will just be adopted at that in that strata as the one untouchable asset in a lot of ways. And at the other end of the spectrum or the other end of the poll, you see the common citizen just trying to escape hyperinflation. So the opposite yep. end of the billionaires is someone trying to you know make ends meet um, or or escape a predatory monetary regime. Do you think, Nation. So based on what you said earlier, nation state adoption of, of Bitcoin and or the digitization of property rights could be similar, where you think it'll, it'll, it will occur at the extremes and then kind of work its way inward?
1: Yeah. I mean, in the sense of, I think you, um, so you have countries like El Salvador now Um, But also, I think Tuvalu is flirting with it. Um, There's an Eastern European country, I think, uh, the Bitfury guys, George Kikofzadeh, is kind of writing about Ukraine having a bill on this. And there will be countries that are sort of neglected by the global financial system that will adopt Bitcoin because you know what? They're at zero already. They're ignored by the world. They're not that wealthy. Roll the dice. Take a risk. If they've got good leaders who are capable of taking calculated risks, you know, um, then, then maybe they'll get somewhere. So that's kind of on the marginalized end and the power user end, you have folks with large stakes who will go and, um, talk to, you know, like the, uh, the hedge fund folks who've come out, the Dalios and Paul Tudor Jones and sailor and, you know, and certainly, I mean, us in tech VC, I think we're some of the very earliest adopters on this, uh, nothing against the, um, the more recent, you know, finance folks who've gone into it, but tech VC was probably the very earliest large holders of BTC, mm-hmm. and um, especially on a personal level, many of the angels in Silicon Valley have have large BTC holdings, uh, and and make the case that this is innovation, and make the case, which is true, that it's a financial innovation, that it is uh, something that the state should not ban for the same reason that it doesn't ban gold, uh, or I mean, the American state did, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other cultures, for example, in India, have had a very long relationship with gold. And, you know, for the same reason that you have limited government, that the government, you know, the, the government embraces, at least in theory, the concept of limiting itself. Um, you, you actually want something like this, which is not destabilizing, but it is a limit on what the state can do. Uh, and it, it, is, it is a frictional thing that you introduce on purpose, uh, to prevent the abuse of human rights. Um, so so that's in the sense, basically, in which I think it also has the marginalized and the power users kind of legalizing this worldwide. And that's kind of what's been happening. Gotcha. Okay. And then property rights, similarly,
0: you think those that adopt, say El Salvador is adopting Bitcoin today, they'll be more likely to digitize other property rights in the coming decades just by virtue of their involvement with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thing about this, by the way, it's like, um, it's difficult to talk about this without, uh, you know, saying things that the maximalists uh, disagree with. It's, a, um, but no problems here. I think, yes. Yeah. So the thing is that, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto was uh, was not a maximalist. I don't know if you've seen some of the things that I've quoted or whatever from him, but, you know, he's talking about name coins with Hal Finney and he's talking about multiple digital currencies and, um, it was something where it was not like a taboo topic or were made into something. That, that was a very late arrival to the whole space. For those people who were in it early, it was not thought of as like this taboo thing to talk about other currencies. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, I analogize it to monotheism or monostatism, where it's something where only one God. you know. Mm-hmm. And I, d- I just don't think that's the case. Like anybody who's, even if you're extremely bullish on gold, and I am, and I'm bullish on digital gold, there's other assets besides gold, like it's it's kind of like you know there's folks who think the government can do everything, um, and they project like godlike capabilities onto it because they don't have a god. So uh, do you remember this video from like ten years ago? Government is the thing we all belong to. No, I've never seen that. Okay, so you should Google this. Government is the thing we all belong to. For people who are you know communityless and bereft of everything, the state is the thing we all belong to. So they sort of project the old bearded guy onto the state. It's the most powerful thing. And if you're against the government, they take it not as, oh, you think uh, this is not the right tool for the job, but as a personal attack on their right. sense of self and on their de facto religion of kind of state worship. Yes. Okay. And this is more explicit, actually, in, in the case of China, where it really is like a form of state worship, where they have the symbol of the state, the hammer and sickle everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's literally something that they would paste above, across, that's what they did in the Soviet Union. They put the state above God in that sense, Mm -hmm. right? So that's GOV over G-O-D. Like God, you know, GOV can do everything, anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually the opposite of limited government. That's unlimited government. Right. That is like an, go ahead.
0: No, I agree with you. It's just the pathway to, you know, atrocity and tyranny too.
1: It's a path of trust. Now, the thing is, I don't think we're anywhere near at a trusty tyranny. But I think there's an irrational aspect. You know, Bitcoin fixes this was a joke. You know, for a long time, and and it's still a joke, and it's still in good humor. And I'm not against it. Or but like, it can't. You know, it's um, when I say it can't fix everything. What I mean by that is it may be really important and maybe the single most important factor for the world in the future, but we're still going to need to eat. We're still going to have tomato futures and we're still going to have companies and we're still going to have other financial instruments and and so on and so forth. And so today, like the world of quote Bitcoin versus shitcoin or whatever is its own little subculture, you know, here, but tomorrow every single technology, every open source project, every every legacy company and every future entity will be on chain and will right. have a token. And now this actually maps back to the DeFi matrix because um, in this environment where you have literally millions of choices, billions of choices, the simplest thing you can do, and it's a very adaptive strategy, is say, screw all that, just hold Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you know what? I, there's a lot to be said for that. There's a simplicity of it. There's like, you know, I don't have time to evaluate all this stuff. I don't have any energy for it. I don't know what's a fraud or a scam or whatever. I'll just hold this one thing. And you know what? There's something to be said for that. There's a simplicity of that. I get Mm -hmm. that. However, it's sort of the same eventually as holding Vanguard. And the reason I say that is today we're in the disequilibrium state where Bitcoin is romping to world dominance. Mm-hmm. And it probably has at least another 10x, maybe 100x in front of it. Once it gets, first of all, just 10 or 100x is amazing for most investments. It's particularly amazing for large amounts of money because mm-hmm. it's very hard, as you know, as an investor. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to invest $100,000 in something. Mm-hmm. You might be able to get a 1,000 or 10,000x. You know, Peter Thiel, I think got like five thousand x or something out of the Facebook investment. And as an angel investor, one can and I have, you can do better than that, right? Because you're investing at a very early stage and there's value creation but you can do that on $1000 or 10,000 or even $100,000 it gets harder and harder to have that level of multiplier the larger the amount of money at a million dollars or 10 million or 100 million especially a billion it's really hard to find 10 xs at a billion mm-hmm. and so bitcoin has like a safe 10x for a billion or 10 billion is like unprecedented you know right. and and so, so if you've got a large fund, of course, you should put the maximum amount you can into BTC, okay? something that's a 20% limit or something like that. This is not financial advice, blah, 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 you know, but like what yeah. I mean by that is if I Assu- was running a fund.
0: Assuming right. uh,
1: you share the worldview that you and I have. Assuming yep. you share the worldview yep. that you and I have, right? Yep. Okay, but given all of that. The thing is that um, you know even if something is doing 10 to 100x over a decade yeah you put a billion dollars in it and that's going to be a pretty good decision and you're not going to you're not going to probably regret that but for the same reason that Vanguard isn't the only instrument out there there's people who will always try to beat the market and if you if you attack that too hard you actually become so ultra conservative that you're against any kind of innovation mm-hmm. everything new is haram everything mm-hmm. new is suspect Everything new is a scam. Everything new is a fraud. Everything new, you're a shill or a charlatan because mm. you set up a new cap table.
0: Mm. Guess
1: what? You know, when you set up a company and the founder has 100% of the shares, they pre-mine the shares. It's
0: very centralized.
1: <laughs> it's very centralized, yeah. right? But but guess what? You know, companies are, are good overall. I mean, that's mm. like that's how we eat food, that's grocery stores, and that's automobiles. And, you know, I mean, do I have to make this point? It's like super obvious for any like capitalist, you know, but the thing is, today, there's like a hard division uh, between the paper equity of a cap table and the digital equity that's on chain, because in the US, everybody's had to bend themselves into pretzels due to all the stupid stuff around securities laws and whatnot that are you know 100 years old. And again, I think these laws are stupid, but you abide by them because people have a gun to your head. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Okay. However, you also seek to change them and recognize that you do want a cap table on chain for the same reason that Carta outcompetes Excel, outcompetes right. a piece of paper. Yes. You know, right. Of course it's better. Of course you want it on chain. You want you want guarantees. You want to have digital signatures rather than simple board votes. Yeah. Like this, this is, is just obvious stuff. Social scalability and Zabos. It's social, it's social scalability. And it's also something where I mean, the pragmatic people, there's very few, very few people, relatively as a percentage, who have actually mined Bitcoin. Most people have bought it off exchanges. And those exchanges are disproportionately run by people who were practical enough to make the trade-off to add fiat currency, which was very controversial, by the way, back in the day. I don't know if right. you remember this, but um, you know, Bitcoin is supposed to be so anti-bank. Oh my God, I can't believe you're doing past reset. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe you're, you're allowing us to buy you know, BTC for USD. Yeah. If those pragmatic trade-offs had not been made by practical people who were pro-Bitcoin, but also efficient. You don't even have the ecosystem today.
0: Yes. Yes. Right.
1: And and so, so this is something where um, like uh you know, the, the definition in my view of what does it mean to be pro-Bitcoin, the more Bitcoin you have, the more pro-Bitcoin you are. Mm. Everything else is noise. The definition of pro-Bitcoin, the, the more Bitcoin you hold for the long term, the more pro-Bitcoin you are. Everything else is um just talk and it can be faked. And it is being faked. And it will be faked. It'll be faked by people who are basically like maximalists. Maximize the number of likes they have on Twitter, not the amount of Bitcoin they have. Maximize the amount of Bitcoin you have, maximizing the legality of it means making pragmatic decisions to legalize it and so on. In fact, even this El Salvador decision, for example, is in a sense a compromise in a different way. It's actually a deep philosophical issue. The concept of mandatory Bitcoin, is a big deal yeah, right. for for all the voluntarist principles that we're talking about right now do i think that you can get to an end state where you say it is the lesser of two evils that um you know th- that we already have currency mandates in place and that the El Salvador bill is better than you know existing currency mandates yeah i think you can make that argument but mm-hmm. i think we should have that argument i think we should have that discussion because you know, that's, that's it. the whole point of this was voluntarism and choice and freedom and whatnot. And mandatory Bitcoin is similar to buy Bitcoin with fiat. It is a compromise, it is a practical trade-off, but we should recognize it as such, you know? And so so coming back at the stack, the uh, like, you know, Naibikeli wants crypto exchanges in the country, wants, uh, you know, like investment development. Why? Because it's a poor country and they, they can't afford a luxury ideology that, is, is really kind of a, it's not even number go up. I, I think there's a distorted version of that because it's not even the maximizing of wealth. I mean, how much, how, where would the Bitcoin ecosystem be today if there were no fiat exchanges? and if nobody was buying Bitcoin for use in DeFi, and if the crypto community outside of Bitcoin didn't exist for lobbying the state to keep things. Like, like, I'm not arguing that there's not some competition at times, there's certainly, I think, dumb people who will say things like, oh, proof of work is environmentally bad, therefore we Mm -hmm. need to go proof of state. I grant that that exists. I also grant that scams exist, and Mm -hmm. I understand why people would want to just go Bitcoin only if they don't have the time or the energy to diligence something that's a scam from a non-scam. Where I, I differ, actually, you know, I had this, uh, I had this sort of thing um, that I, that's a, that's a tweet that I'll, I'll send at some point. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, exit the Fed, check. Stop the bailouts, check. Return to sound money, check. Build a voluntary society, check. End the welfare warfare state, check. Bitcoin as the global reserve currency, check. Bitcoin as an epochal technological breakthrough, check. Bitcoin as the only digital asset ever, everything else is evil. You lost me. <laughs> That's, and,
0: yeah. Go ahead. Well said. Um, I, I just want to throw some things back your way. Because sure. I think you and I, we both, it's interesting. I am I hold 100% of my savings is in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I have held other positions in the past, especially when I was operating a fund. Um, but I've found... For my own peace of mind, I'm just in an all Bitcoin position right now. And that's that's good with me. Doesn't mean I won't I'll always be there, but that's where I am today. And it's funny, you have this pro, I think you coined pro-BTC, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and I coined this thing, I think, freedom maximalism, where it's like I didn't want yeah. to identify with this toxic culture that I don't identify with the cultural norms of. You know, I didn't want to look at someone and tell them to have fun staying poor. So I actually and my, yeah, my thinking, yeah. my thinking there is just that the principle you can never confuse the principle for its implementation. So although Bitcoin is or appears to be the highest implementation of human reason or freedom we've ever had, you know, if, if money is the ultimate tool for freedom, Bitcoin's the ultimate money, then Bitcoin's the ultimate tool for freedom. But that doesn't mean you put Bitcoin above freedom, all right? That would that's kind of like when the state puts itself above God in a
1: way, you want to hold the principle yeah. highest. Exactly. And the thing is, this is similar to, you know, some people will beat up on centrism because centrism can be done in a thoughtless way of just being Mm -hmm. a normie who just abides for everything, right? But there's a pragmatic form of centrism where, uh, you know, I mean, to start with the obvious statement, like you know, Nazism is bad, but so is wokeness. You know, you, you mm-hmm. like the extreme opposite of something doesn't necessarily get you to an optimum. Um, you can you can have like a, a situation where white people are being sent to the back of the line for vaccines, as is happening in America in 2021, is bad. Just mm-hmm. as you know what the Nazis did, it's 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 like the exact opposite, the photographic negative. It's not necessarily that you want to quote maximize something and mm-hmm. ram it to one extreme or another. Um, the the idea of balance is important, and so I'm I'm sympathetic to freedom maximalism in the sense I think it's the right direction for us. Mm-hmm. But even freedom maximalism is something where uh, you you know as we were talking about earlier, there's certain things where if everybody is free, then a gang that cooperates can yes. cooperate and kill all of you individually. Market failures and somewhere. Market yeah. exactly. There's market failures. There's things that are literally provided by collective entities. And one way of thinking about it is. Um, there's. It is true that the state is failing, but overcorrecting into crypto anarchy, while crypto anarchy is superior to San Francisco's state, it is not, in my view, optimal. Right? Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of you know I, I would call it optimization rather than maximization. Mm-hmm. Okay. Crypto anarchy is you know the thing is when we watch movies, even if they're dystopian people end up reenacting them simply because it's a story we all know. Mm -hmm. And so you watch a dystopian thing like Mad Max and that's actually a bad scenario. You don't want Mad Max. People Mm -hmm. take for granted that we live in a high trust-ish society where you don't have to test every... Uh, like like cup of coffee for whether there was poison in it. Right. Like in China, you, you know, melamine was put into like kids' milk and like infants died. That's a terrible society to live in where you have transaction costs and everything. Trust no one. A trustless society is actually a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Conversely, to totally trust the existing state is likewise foolish. Mm-hmm. And so what is the answer is to rebuild trust, to uncouple from the current state and rebundle into entities, new nations effectively built online that have consent and mutual trust among the people. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's like that third order. It is neither blindly trust the establishment nor become this like barbarian creature who trusts nobody. And and that sounds cool today, by the way, but <laughs> yeah. actual Mad Max sucks. Yeah. Right? It, it it's one of these things where. Um, You know, a a frequent state worshiper response to any critique of the state is go live in Somalia. Mm -hmm. But it is also true that that state in Somalia is not really a great place. You would would neither want to live under the USSR, neither the Soviet Union nor Somalia. I think Singapore is better. I think Switzerland is better than both, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Both the extreme of the total state and anarchy are obviously bad. I mean, these are like kind of 101 political theory concepts, but it's worth reiterating them because humans are sort of geared, especially in large dumb mobs, to veer to one extreme or to another.
0: Right. You know? Yes. Madness being the norm of crowds, I think was what EJ said. So I agree. That's and where I'm hung up, and I'm again admitting this, like I don't I haven't properly identified market failures in my mind. So maybe I'm still overcorrecting in my mental model towards decentralization, freedom, libertarianism. I do view Bitcoin as the only asset in my framework that has achieved true decentralization at this point. You and I are going to talk about this because you wrote an excellent yeah, piece sure. on this in 2017 okay. at some point, which is actually quantifying decentralization. So let's we'll, talk about we'll, that. You want to do Maybe that now? We're, okay.
1: We're, yeah, let's do that now. Yeah.
0: yeah. Let, so, let me, So this one last point I want to make, just and I'm constantly... Hashing this out on my own mind. So it feels good to say it out loud. I agree, Bitcoin doesn't fix everything, which is the common refrain among Bitcoin maximalists. However, I think it's second and third and fourth order effects might, you know, like it's that foundational. It's something that imposes, we talked about financial discipline on governments, but it also imposes like hyper responsibility on all market actors. Like you get, you gain this great power to be self sovereign, but with that comes, Uh, an equivalent level of responsibility. And I think that leveling up of responsibility could really um, make the canopies under which we organize ourselves much more effective and efficient, which might be these kind of network states you're referring to, right? It's like a new uh, organizational model that's based on a lot more information symmetry, I guess, where there's less less predator and prey dynamics, much more social cohesion and such. Um, yes, yeah, so- and you did mention that. I just want to throw this out there. If we get too far lost, sure. You did mention you wanted to revisit the scenario of centralized east versus decentralized west, which might play into this.
1: Yes, so so here is the thing: is um, absolutely, I think Bitcoin's second, third, and fourth order effects are very important. And again, relative to most people in the world, they would consider me a a Bitcoin nutter who has been talking about Bitcoin for the better part of a decade uh, (laughs) constantly to people. I mean, way before most people were, we were into into this stuff and and evangelizing it and whatnot, as I was mentioning. However, um, there's nothing so good that you can't overdo it. Right. Just nothing. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, that, that's true for religious fundamentalism. Like, do I think moderate religion is good? Yes. Uh, do, do I think you can be a fundamentalist lunatic? Also true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making money. Is it important to make money to create wealth and so on? Absolutely. Is that the sole and solitary purpose of one's life? No, you have, you know, other, other things in life, yeah. right? So there's basically nothing so good that it can't be taken too far and to an extreme. And that's why I'm like, uh, you know, I'm just dispositionally not a maximalist, And I'm also, that also actually, by the way, is sort of where I think a good chunk of the world is outside the West. The Mm -hmm. West is sort of, it has lots of great things, but it it kind of generates both great good and great evil. Mm. Like communism came out of the West. Okay. This like insane ideology, wokeness has come out of the West. And it's like this, you know, in the same way, like COVID came out of China and infected the rest of the world, like communism was exported from the West. To China and to you know Vietnam, these are places this mind virus that that messes them up badly, you know, and um, and so the West has some really great things. It has it has essentially the best and the very worst, and so like the ideological kind of lunacy is uh, is something which uh, it is because people are logical slash religious that they think if A, then B, and if B, then C, and if C, then D, and if D, then E. Mm-hmm. And and this is something Orwell talked about. He who believes X must believe Y. He who believes Y must believe Z. In the Soviet Union, it was applied as follows. Oh, you think the US is ahead of us? Well, that might mean you're a saboteur. Oh, That's you're a right. saboteur? Well, you're trying to wreck our great Soviet state and therefore, we need to bring you up for the death penalty. I mean, I I, I don't even really exaggerate. That was actually the discourse at, at times. Yep. And you can also see this with with the wokes on Twitter, where, um, you know, like like the the equation that they're making of like math is white supremacist or, or something like that, right. which two plus is two which equals five. And yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, two plus two equals five. Yeah, mm-hmm. this stuff is um, it is something where they start from a. Uh, I, I would argue, despite its tarnishment recently or tarnishing recently, uh, a laudable premise of tolerance. But wokes are to tolerant liberals what you know Nazis are to conservatives, or um, you know what uh, communists are to economic progressives, or in some ways what maximalists are to libertarians. Like that—that is—it's something where you go so far out there that you invert the premises. And you you essentially traduce what got you there, which is tolerance or voluntarism or conserving the past or helping the worker. Like you know the progressive, the economic progressive who may have genuinely wanted the best for workers in the Soviet Union those workers were in gulags. <laughs> they right. couldn't strike, yeah. you know? And so you can go so far in a direction where you're voicing X, but then you start doing the opposite of it, but the words don't match the images. This is like, you know, this AOC thing recently, where clearly that's like a scene out of the Hunger Games, Yes, you know, where uh, yeah, it's like a joke yes. where this super rich person with her at uh, a with, gala. With masks being, go ahead. At a gala of all things,
0: she's at, at, what, at, she's a at the Met Gala you know,
1: or something. It's something where, Blaine um, Greenwald had a great article on this, where uh, it's not that champagne socialism is an exception. It's the only kind. Yes. You know, like like uh, Rob K. Henderson has a great article on this where he talks about luxury beliefs. And he basically talks about how many of these things are, um, are, are are beliefs that only an economic or cultural elite could propound because it's almost like the peacock's tail you know yeah. it's this big costly signaling thing that you yes. can carry around because you're so alpha that you can you can tolerate the weight of that
0: yes okay yes and costly so they, signaling theory 100%
1: yeah like like one example of this is many 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 people who will uh you know not just tolerate but promote non-traditional family arrangements are themselves ultra conservative in their personal life. Like this is one contradiction that Rob K. Henderson points out, okay? Mm -hmm. and But there's many more like this. Like, you know, it may actually be that the elite can tolerate um, drugs to a greater extent, for example, than most other people. Uh, Like they have, you know, at a minimum greater societal resources to fall back on. If they just do too much, well, someone can put them in rehab. Their Mm -hmm. friends will talk them out of it. They they won't overcorrect and run off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. Daniel Heninger made this case, you know, many decades ago, this concept of no guardrails. Okay. That that was basically where society was removing the guardrails. Now, the issue is that in many ways, decentralization is removing those guardrails. Mm-hmm. That is to say, when you remove that centralizing force, it mediates, it moderates, it's a middleman, it's mediocre. You know, I mentioned this on the the Ferris podcast, but each of those are words that have different connotations, but they're all kind of the same thing, where there's a centralizing force that's keeping things stable, is preventing things from getting too good or too bad. Right. And so the guardrails are being removed. And so the upside is happening, but the downside is also happening and people are crashing and they're also rising. I think on balance in the long term, it's on net good because the things that are good grow so exponentially that they like we'll absorb and pick up the pieces for the things that are bad. Mm-hmm. Like that is to say, you can only go to zero, but you can get to infinity.
0: Right. You know?
1: But I, I, I do think that that like unbundling process, that that guard realification is happening. Anyway, so what I, what I think happens at the end of that is you rebundle. you you the, the goal is not to just maximize an objective. It is to optimize you know, societal flourishing, to societal freedom. Like what is the vision of crypto civilization? Just to talk about it. So I've used that word a few times, crypto civilization versus crypto anarchy. To me, what is that? That is uh, reversing aging and life extension. That is Mars. That is advancing mathematics. And why do I say mathematics? Because I think of it as a civilizational ruler. Mm-hmm. You can basically compare civilizations by how good they are at math across right. time and space. I, yeah. if you woke me up in the year 3000 and you, and you, and I was asked to measure what civilizational progress is, I'd ask something like, has the Riemann hypothesis, you know, been solved, have the clay math problems been solved, right. You know, where are we on math? Yeah. Okay. Everything's,
0: downstream might, everything's downstream from that.
1: Everything's downstream because yeah. that is like, you know, I mean, what homo sapiens is to um, you know, I was going to say Neanderthals, but really Neanderthals, we may have interbreeded with them. There's, you know, introgression for the genetics papers. What, what we were to our, our precursor, a thousand years from now, we might be robotic, you know, creatures or or some descendant of us that we can't even imagine at this point. Um, And, but, you know, and we'd be as different from the the current human would be as different from that as we are from our hominid distant ancestors. Okay. That's very possible. In that case, how do you measure progress? Um, I think it's going to be mathematics. I think that's going to be the ruler. Now, there's gonna be a lot of people who will be really mad or disagree with that. And and that actually is a very important axis. I I kind of think that despite how dispositionally against just just straight maximization I am, I think the future axis of the world is transhumanism versus anarcho primitivism. The
0: second one anarcho-primitives?
1: Have you heard that term? I have not. So, so essentially, I feel like our current you know, political axis is rotating such that this is eventually the main event. Transhumanism versus anarcho-primitivism. And uh, what anarcho-primitivism is, is basically like the Unabomber style ideology. Mm, okay? okay, it is, uh, and there's also extreme climate activists who believe in this type of stuff, mm-hmm. which is humans are a mistake. Industrial civilization's a mistake. We need to go back to green. You know, there's something called like, you know, this is a caricature, but I don't think it'll be one eventually. Like, vehement, voluntary human extinction movement for a while back is kind of a joke, but kind of not.
0: You know? It's like like, ecological nihilism or something.
1: Yeah, it's something which sort of says humans are bad. Their impact on the world is bad. More humans are bad. Civilization is bad. Uh, Technological development is bad. and. I think you're going to see more and more of this, especially in the West, as technology destabilizes the society they knew. There'll be an anti-tech reaction. And, you know, Peterson, Jordan Peterson, you mentioned him before. He's actually pointed out that there are several revolutions going on at the same time right now. For example, Tinder alone, Tinder and uh, Hinge and these other dating apps where you just swipe left and swipe right. If you've seen the graph of how people meet their partners. okay, it's have you seen that graph?
0: Yeah, it's like 80 plus percent. On these apps now,
1: yes, yeah, so it's all internet. It's like internet and everything else. People Collapsing. used to meet through their church. Yeah. They used to meet through um, like family, friends. Yeah. yeah, the only thing that's up besides the internet is like bars. Oh, I thought, yeah, oh, interesting. Okay, okay, and that might change too post COVID because you know it's like yeah difficulties go out, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so so essentially. It's just all internet mating. It's all just you know a swipe of. That's a radical change yeah. from whatever hundred years of human history um, yeah. you know where your community had some de facto influence in who you mated with. Um, whether it was like, okay, well, you know you you had respect for marrying somebody with the same religious domination or something like that. those were huge influences on people. That's become yes. completely unbundled, right? Yeah. And that's just like one of these revolutions. And this observation is on to be Peterson made it, but if you add up all of those, I can see why people would be against technology, or they would feel it's destabilizing, or they feel they can't ride the tiger, or they want to jam it back in the box. And you know, even though uh, like MAGA and the New York Times, you know, they seem opposed, and they are in many ways. Like you know, one group wants to return to the 1950s, sort of, and the other group kind of wants to return to pre-2008. Before the internet really started kicking their butt on everything, yeah. they hate the tech guys, right? right? Yeah, um, the quote tech bros. And so, so like as both of those things start fading into the distant past. Um, you know, even like guys like Krugman, for example, Paul Krugman, he also kind of romanticizes like the 50s, but from a different era of, oh, it was a strong centralized state and it was in control and so on. So people mm-hmm. had this sort of hazy image of the past that they're romanticizing. And as the, the reasons for that, like, you know, as 2008 and 1950 become closer and closer to each other, the past of romanticizing becomes closer mm-hmm. and they hate the future more and more. By contrast, in Asia, they like the future on balance. Mm-hmm because the 20th century sucked for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This is not something that like you know, an American feels viscerally because, or like most Americans, because obviously there's Americans who are immigrants and you know mm-hmm, have this experience mm-hmm. from overseas. But you know the American experience of the 50s is sort of civilizational memory that's been documented in movies it, and it becomes more romanticized in some ways the further back it goes. Even the 90s were a very good era you know, for, for the U S where yeah. it's prosperity. And in the fifties, like a a guy with a high school degree could um, provide for a whole family and they could have a house and a car and, and all this stuff. And the thing about that is that time and place was actually very aberrant because in the fifties, the rest of the world had been bombed to smithereens. Right was in the middle of civil war or communism, right? Like Russia had just lost, you know, the Soviet Union was under communism and lost like 20 million people. Germany was ruined. Britain had lost, you know, like it had been bombed during the battle of Britain and lost whatever hundred thousand men. Um, China was in the middle of civil war. Japan had been nuked and occupied, blah, blah, blah. You go around the world and all of these industrial centers had been bombed or hit by communism or socialism or both, right? Mm -hmm. And so, the factories of the world were shut off and the U.S. was the least badly hit. It only lost, quote, unquote, only on the order of like 300,000 men, I believe, you know, and, and, and the homeland with the exception of Pearl Harbor was mostly intact. So it was the best off after World War II and a lot of its competition had just being hit. So it was inevitable that as the rest of the world uninstalled that Western mind virus, which and the reason I call it Western is it originated from the West of socialism and communism. As it uninstalled that Western mind virus, as it um, didn't just throw off colonialism and go to the economic left, but eventually came back to the economic right, you know, or libertarian right, uh, with with both Deng Xiaoping and Manon Singh in 1970, and 19, respectively, throwing off communism and socialism in China and India. As it did that, it was inevitable that that would grow, and that would become a larger piece of the world, and that would bring on competition, and build products because there are smart people overseas. And so the thing is that, in Asia, they don't romanticize that past at all. Right. Beyond, well, actually, I shouldn't say at all. They do, in China, romanticize Mao kicking out the foreigners. Huh. That's that's the big thing. Like, Mao in China is, um, you know, obviously, is a genocidal maniac that killed yes. millions of Chinese people. Okay. Yes. But because he won, and because the Chinese Communist Party has an interest in portraying itself as a continuous entity, um, because Deng Xiaoping, basically what he did was like a coup in 1978, the way he took over China. Very few Americans know about this. Should I talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, like please. I don't, I don't know the history of it.
1: Okay. So the, the, the thing is that, um, like how did China get rich? It was this desperately poor communist country that somehow managed to like level up to such an extent that it's contending with the US. And like this, the simple, and I'd say kind of it's one piece of it, but like sort of the dumb explanation is, oh, we outsource all the jobs. That's a piece of it, okay. But mm. why why did they go there? Like, like how did they execute? They they obviously executed. They built up their cities. They mm-hmm. built up their navy. They built up their IT. Like clearly, they executed as well as being the beneficiaries of some of the outsourcing, or whatever. Right. Um, and what happened specifically? So to make a very long story short, uh, you know, after World War II, the nationalists and the communists who had um, fought together against the Japanese occupation, you know, had a truce, they resumed fighting. So Mao and Chiang Kai-shek, the communists and nationalists, you know, resumed fighting. Mao eventually won basically because, um, you know, there's a whole thing on who lost China. And there's an argument to be made that guys like Owen Lattimore and Edgar Snow, Edgar Snow was this journalist from a few decades earlier who had written these hagiographies of Mao. Um, it, by the way, many of these communist dictators—some some great like people to Google—John Reed. He, he is like buried in the Soviet Union. He wrote the uh, the account of of Russia's revolution, ten days that shook the world. He's like buried near Lenin because he's like so holy in the Soviet Union. He's like this journalist that that glorified them. Edgar Snow glorified Mao. Um, Walter Duranty glorified Stalin and you know the uh, the Ukrainian famine. and uh, and Herbert Matthews was responsible for for Castro taking over Cuba. So many of these things were actually Western impositions. And when you you drill into what happened in China, Mao basically was able to beat Chiang Kai-shek because guys like Owen Lattimore in the State Department pulled support Um, And this is controversial. There's books on it at the time, like who lost China or what have you. But it's a little bit like if you think about the Israelis and Palestinians today, Republicans back, you know, roughly the Israelis, Democrats roughly back the Palestinians. You can argue it's not completely polarized that way, but it's kind of like that. And sort of in the same way Republicans backed the nationalists and Democrats were not exactly pro-communist, but there are many that were anti anti communist and mm-hmm. so they didn't think that Mao was going to be that bad. They were influenced by Edgar Snow's book, like Red Star over China. Guys like Owen Lattimore were sympathetic to it. They thought it was anti-colonialism for real and be okay. Net-net is the US did not back hard enough. Nationalists were driven to Taiwan, the communists won. And then Mao began um, you know, consolidating power. And there's obviously many other things that happened, the Korean War, et cetera. But the... Um, what would happen over the next thirty-something years is uh, that there, you know, the great leap forward happened, where agriculture was collectivized, millions of Chinese people died, and the Cultural Revolution happened from sixty-six to seventy-six, where um, it's basically like wokeness. Everybody is denouncing everybody. The professors were sent to the fields, and the students were encouraged to like kill the professors, if literally kill. Um, to get a sense of it, you know how crazy college campuses are uh, in the U.S. nowadays.
0: Well, I know how crazy they were from 2004
1: to 2008. Okay, fine, <laughs> but I they're crazier <laughs> today. However, the level of craziness they got to in China during the Communist Revolution is, at, or during during the Cultural Revolution, was during that period, kids at Jinghua were, uh, which is like the Chinese MIT, were grouping into factions and machine gunning each other on campus. My God! Wow. Okay, that was what like. China was like over that period. Just total insane wow. um communist anarchy. It was it was Maoist. It was what, actually 66 to 76. Wow. Actually, if you want flavor of what happened there, uh, there's a great book. Um, I mean, this is a famous book, but the um The Three Body Problem by Xi Jin Lu. Okay, mm. famous, basically maybe the most famous Chinese author right now. Read just the first chapter of the first book. Mm. And even though it's fictionalized, it'll give you a sense of how insane China was under communism. It's just simply not, you know, for, for many reasons, it hasn't been documented in movies. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that China itself kind of wants to kind of whitewash that history. Yeah, you know, that was in the past, let's like forget about it or whatever, right? And yeah. there's a lot of Americans who are like quasi sympathetic or even outright sympathetic to communism and think, oh, it, was, it had good intentions. Nazism is really evil. Okay, mm-hmm. and so the, the 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 media on this has not actually been made, but there's an opportunity to show what it actually was. Um, by the way, if anybody wants to, that's the kind of thing I'd love to fund to put some Bitcoin in somebody doing that. Okay, just showing what the history of communism actually was, because you have no shortage of drama. You know, you have the Berlin Airlift and you have the Cultural Revolution and you have the Great Leap Forward and you have the Hundred Flowers Campaign. You know, in the in the Eastern Theater and the Western Theater. You know, Berlin Airlift is happening in in, in Europe. The Hundred mm-hmm. Flowers in, in China. All this stuff is happening, and it's like incredibly dramatic. And you can just take it out of a Wikipedia article or a Britannic article, or whatever, and turn it into a script. And it's just like just down the middle. You don't even have to make it up. It's just, you, you, you wouldn't have to fictionalize. It. Yeah. But okay, coming back to the stack. So net is this insane communist state was killing people, pitting people against each other. By the mid-'70s, um, folks, there's enough folks who had had enough, but obviously there's no election or any way for them to voice it. Deng Xiaoping had been purged multiple times in China. Today, we would call that canceled Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in under communism, purging typically meant you lost your life, liberty and or property. That is, you were shot, yeah. jailed and or robbed, okay. But Deng managed to kind of duck and like kind of avoid it where he was purged, but he was so competent that like they didn't actually kill him. Because mm-hmm. He had enough sympathizers that he could like hang on to the margins of society. And he made his way back. In the chaos after Mao's death, he essentially managed to get enough of the military guys and so on on his side to outmaneuver the so called Gang of Four and managed to take control of China around 1978. And most people were okay with him taking control because they thought, among other things, that he was very old. Mm. And so he wasn't going to be able to make it. He was in the 70s when he took total control of China. But the guy was so competent that for the next fourteen odd years, he managed to run China and, like, he ran a turnaround of a communist state where there's probably countless people who wanted to assassinate him, and he managed to turn it into this capitalist machine, make peace with the West, um, and and lay the foundations. Actually, like, a really kind of insane, uh, you know, level of turnaround. Like, Ezra Vogel has a good book on this. Now, Mao, uh, Deng did other things. Deng did TNN and. Um, and so he, he fired on the the group of people who was protesting. And so that's why a lot of people dislike him. And I can understand that. Um, so, wh- let, me ask, is-
0: let me ask one question here. Was part of this, because I've heard Peterson talk about this, that China opened up, I think this started in agriculture, actually, that they were having food shortages from the communistic model. So they actually opened up agriculture to competition. And so they started adding these capitalistic elements under the communistic state. Is yeah. that what enabled them to become the production factory of the world effectively?
1: That's part of it. There's actually a good like kind of quick article on this called The Secret Document That Transformed China. Actually it's mm-hmm. from NPR of all places in 20 2011 before they went as woke as they are. But essentially uh you know there's a there's a village in you know in Zhaogang where some um some folks there were See, under communism, you didn't own anything. You didn't even own the teeth in your head. And so the thing that they gathered in Hush Whispers to talk about is, hey, can we sign a contract between us where we all agree that yeah, we'll produce food, but we get to keep some of it for ourselves? <laughs> okay, because rather than 100%, like this yeah. this was something, to give a sense, this was so controversial at that time that they signed the contract, and do you know what the key term of the contract was? That if they were killed for practicing capitalism, that some of the other people in the village would take care of their children. Wow. Okay. So entrepreneurship was punishable by death. Yeah. In living memory. That's like 1978. That's only, you know, that's like 44 years ago. That's not that long ago. Wow. Okay. So, so what a difference from the modern China where you have all of these companies and whatnot, right? It's turning more communist in a way now, but, but there's a 40-year period. So right. yes, so that was an example of, of, I think, what Peterson is referring to where um, these guys, by the way, what happened was they had a bumper harvest. And because they had a bumper harvest, they came under suspicion from the state who got really curious mm. as to why these guys were able to you know, grow so much crop when everyone else was. And they suspected them of practicing capitalism. They were going to like round them all up and execute them, which is the rewards you get for starting a business. Tax the rich, right? The the communist communist style, right? Kill the rich, basically. Eat the rich, right? Um, And this is, of course, relatively rich. It's like some some poor peasant who has, you know, like a little more green. Reducing your effective
0: tax rate from one hundred percent to ninety eight, right? And that's the rich in China.
1: Exactly right. So so what happened was. uh, Fortunately for them, and unfortunately for all the people who pursued them, but fortunately for them, Deng was in power then and basically held up a hand and said, hey, actually, you know what? Let's not kill them. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And so he didn't try to flip the entire country from communist to capitalist. Instead, he set up these so-called special economic zones, of which Shenzhen Hmm. was the first, across um, the causeway from Hong Kong. And he literally fenced it off. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't like go into Shenzhen, you know, and so this sort of contained it. And so he husbanded his political capital and spent it there. And this way, all the communist lunatics who'd been raised for 30 years to just mindlessly spout slogans, um, you know, were, they weren't exactly assuage, but they they couldn't attack it as hard because most of the country was still communist. You just can't flip something into reverse all the way. That's something that's that big. So he, from the success there, because that, of course, grew like a weed, because he had seen, by the way, that Taiwan and Hong Kong and Singapore were doing so well. He yes. knew the Chinese people could execute. These were like essentially the same ethnic group right. that was separated. And you ran the experiment. The experiment was communism doesn't and, work.
0: And Hong Kong in particular was a the Hong Kong miracle, right? It was basically yeah. completely flat broke. I think it was even devastated.
1: Post conflict at some point, And then they just. Was that- well, Singapore, I knew, came from third world to first. The Hong Kong miracle, actually, I'm not as familiar with that. Um, yeah. You know, so when did the, g- they- the
0: gist of it, I don't know. You'll have to check me on the timeline, but they went from
1: very poor to. Oh, but grown- after the occupation in 1945.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. But yes. because they took a very, the government took a very lax approach, very low and predictable taxes and low intervention.
1: Yes. That's right. British managed. And it was, yes. That's right. Yeah. So. Essentially, though, basically what what, uh, Deng was able to do is he couldn't really take advice from Taiwan because that was their historical enemy. He took, and and Hong Kong was the British and, you know, but Singapore was an independent state and Lee Kuan Yew mentored Deng Xiaoping and basically like CEO to CEO, you know, kind of taught him capitalism and um, was responsible for kind of, because, you know, it's actually insane that this guy at 78, after two generations of communist brainwashing with the entire country dirt poor with it's it's uh, it's like taking somebody who's who is a religious fundamentalist who literally fought a holy war to start the state and then teaching them astronomy and really complicated math at age 78 and then having them pull off like a moon landing it's it's kind of at that level of difficulty okay (laughs) and as i get older i'm like wow that's actually pretty pretty difficult right and um so, uh, point is that um, so you know, Deng rolled out capitalism first to Shenzhen and then to the other four cities on the eastern seaboard, and then overall reformed the country. Um, and you know, the the as I said, the main um, you know the thing about that is the, the Chinese did execute like they did build up their country. And um, it's something where then in 1991, um, after the collapse of the USSR, uh, the the Indians also went from socialism to capitalism. Manmohan Singh put in a bunch, they were forced to by by the economic crisis that kind of ensued in, in the 1991 environment. And they basically that's called liberalization in India, okay? Mm-hmm. And they they also kind of deregulated big chunks of the economy, went away from the license Raj, opened it up. And that's basically the Indian growth story of the last 30 years, which has you know issues with it, but it's like way better. India is far, 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 far better than it was when I was a kid. And so, my overall point, my macro point here is that India and China have a completely different memory of the 20th century than mm-hmm. the West does. They look at it as this time of humiliation. Colonialism, poverty, communism or socialism, when uh, you know, they were, you know, condescended to India's not on the UN Security Council, China was invaded, you know, they, they weren't fully colonized, but they were partially colonized with the opium wars and so on. Like literally the US fought to export drugs to China. Right. Do you know about that?
0: Uh, that's a that's a go ahead. At the margins. I don't know a lot about it, but I've heard some about it. Yeah.
1: You know, the thing that's a huge deal for them like yeah. that's something that they read novels about that's a, that's like a like an offense that they they pay a lot of attention to it's one of these interesting things where um it's very asymmetric you know um and this is what propaganda is often propaganda is about stressing those true facts that harm the other guy um and that like kind of a clean win for your side but they don't mm-hmm. talk about the complexity so when Westerners will talk about China, the one event that most Westerners know about is TNN in 1991. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we can talk about that. That's a whole. That's a whole thing. But what they don't know about is um, the Great Leap Forward, or the Cultural Revolution, or Owen Lattimore, or Edgar Snow, or the export of communism to China, or the Opium Wars, which are a huge thing for China, where they are like really mad about Western colonialism.